Hello, comics friends. This is Between the Gutters with Dastardly Drew Tan and Amazing Albert Lamb. <laughs> Why am I dastardly, but you're amazing? Oh, I couldn't think of a thing that started with D. Uh, I could be devastating. You could be devastating. You or could be devilish. Delicious Drew Tan. I, I, yeah, 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 that, that is an adjective that starts with the letter D. Yeah. Um, you are awful, Albert. Okay, I'll go with awful, you know, I mean, okay. it's not the okay. first time I've heard it. I mean, people certainly re- respond that way, don't they? So. <laughs> so this is Between the Gutters, where we, where we talk about the stories within the panels. There we go. All right. So we've been on hiatus for quite a bit, but we're uh, we're back. We're ready to do do's work. We does work. You can never keep us down, suckers. You can't. You can't. You can't stop us. Um, you thought we was dead, but we ain't. We're risen. We are risen. Every day. Uh, Every all day, day. All day. Er day. <laughs> er day. Er day. <laughs> Not every day. Er day. <laughs> E R R D A Y D A E Erday. Is that how you spell it? Erday, Drew. Erday. Where did you go to college again? <laughs> Homeschooled. <laughs> I thought you were about to say Nevada State Penitentiary. Uh. All right. So today we are going to continue our countdown of the top 25 marvel comics of all time so today uh we're gonna get into numbers 10 and 9 on our list so as hard as it is to believe we've been doing enough episodes and we've already reached our top 10 yep uh started a while ago with 25 and worked our way down so we're gonna get into it again today um so albert just as a brief recap in terms of uh, how we decided on what made the list, what would you explain? How would you explain uh, our criteria? So we uh, we had a long discussion, me and you, about the things that we felt would the factors that were important in deciding uh, what would make our top ten com. Uh, the factors that we wanted to use to determine what would make our top 10 comics or top 25 comics rather. And the things that we looked at or that we finally agreed upon included the craft of the comic, which was the, the, the technical aspects of the comic, the writing, the artwork, and just the amount of skill and, uh, effort that was put into that. And the overall storytelling. Yeah. The overall storytelling. Um, in addition to the craft, we also looked wanted we wanted to include the originality of the comic, um, and this includes not just necessarily the plot or um, or the actual story itself, but also originality in terms of probably the structure or even artistic style, the the the, the individual voice that's. Mm-hmm brought to the comic whether it's the writing or the the art itself mm-hmm. um the other criteria that we included was the impact of the comic uh which which is uh, basically the uh 
I, I would say it's it's the 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 footprint that's left after the comic is done. You know, just yeah. uh, you know, on whether that be on popular culture or the comics industry, just what mark did it leave? Yeah. You know, um, I, I thought that was we we thought that was a pretty important thing to include, and finally, what we wanted uh, the last criteria that we wanted to review was the comic's ability to withstand the test of time. So um, this is a little different from Impact in the sense that there are some comics that come out and they kind of change the industry at the time uh, because they're you know they they introduce something new, but it's not necessarily something that you can read uh, five years down the road, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road. So, um, yeah, we wanted to be able to review these works and determine whether it's something that is essentially timeless. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. Makes yeah. sense. Whoever came up with those criteria, a pair of geniuses. These smart people, smart people. Yeah. Homeschooled, I heard. <laughs> <laughs> Our day, Drew. Our day. <laughs> Shanka Donka. <laughs> so what's number 10 today, Drew? At number 10, we have Ecstatics by Peter Milligan and Mike Allred. So Ecstatics, that's Ecstatics spelled X-S-T-A-T-I-X. <laughs> that's obviously an X-Men comic. Yeah. This, like I said, it was created by Peter Milligan and Mike Allred, um, colored by... Mike Allred's wife Laura Allred, and uh, had a they had a few uh, artists uh, over the course of their run, including some big names like Darwin Cook, uh, Duncan Figueredo, Paul Pope, among others. But let me uh, before we get uh, into what makes Ecstatics one of our top ten Marvel comics of all time, let's let's shed a little light on the historical context of this. This Absolutely. Series, yeah. Can you tell us? Um, can you give us a little bit of background of uh, when it came out and you know what what its run length was? Yeah. So this came out in early uh, in the early two thousands. In the first issue actually came out in two thousand one. Let me go back a bit actually because Ecstatics didn't start off under the title Ecstatics. It actually started off as X-Force, and X-Force had been a long-running comic uh, from the early 90s, <laughs> you know, the Rob Liefeld era yeah. of muscular was, people yeah. with a lot of pouches and big straps on their bodies and muscles, and yeah. he didn't have feet because he couldn't draw anatomy <laughs> properly, <laughs> but he could draw big guns and, yeah. and explosions and muscles and teeth gritted. That's probably the version of X-Force that most comics fans uh, associate with the name X-Force. Yeah, when you, you think know? of X-Force, you think of Cable, yeah. and Rob Liefeld, and Deadpool, Yeah, those characters. Um, that The original X-Force spun out of another X-Men spinoff, which was New Mutants, Yeah, back in the 80s, which was a team of, uh, basically a teenage uh, version of, of mutants. Yeah, a teenage mutant team. And then... At, Towards the late 80s, early 90s, Rob Liefeld came on board and, and he yeah. turned it into a, a, a paramilitary strike force. Yeah. Where they were, their mission was basically to help Cable prevent this post-apocalyptic future that he came back in time to stop. Yeah, it was, um, it was kind of, 
I guess. I guess time moves. You know, time moves forward for us. So yeah. the X Men uh, exists kind of in a vacuum, and the X Force was the '90s version, like the you know, the uh, yeah, the '90s version of the X Men, or it was the the version of the X Men that was supposed to appeal to that generation. Right, because yeah. they were more militaristic. They were more aggressive. Yeah, more, I guess it was like if you took the most popular X Men, who was Wolverine. And you made everybody on the team like a Wolverine. Yeah. Then that was X Force. It was either this is Wolverine with swords. Yeah. And this is Gun Wolverine. Yeah. And this is Karate Chop Wolverine. This is a female Wolverine. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Like everybody was was some version of Wolverine. <laughs> yeah. Not not necessarily in how they looked, but just in terms attitude. of attitude. Attitude. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They were they were they were just a uh, you know a hard nosed. Strike team. Yeah. If the if the end of the eighties, early nineties was a period that was signified by excess, this was excess. Yeah. And yet somehow people loved this stuff because X Force number one, when it came out, was it ended up becoming one of the greatest selling individual comic books of all time. Yeah. I think it probably sold around at least four or five million. Yeah. So it it was popular, and it, it lasted up through uh, the point we're talking about, uh, which was issue 116, of, uh, which came out in uh, early 2001, yeah. or mid-2001, I think. Yeah. Here, here's a little more uh, additional historical context. So we talked a little bit about what X-Force as a comic was. Let me, let's talk a little bit about what's been, what was going on at Marvel at the time. So if... if uh, Folks have been listening to some of our earlier episodes. We've talked a lot about the era uh, of the early 2000s, actually, when we mentioned, uh, you know, the Marvel Knights imprint, the Marvel Max imprint, and how Joe Quesada uh, and Bill Jemis were in charge and kind of changed things around for, for Marvel. Yeah. So this was right around that era as well. So Joe Quesada had actually recently been appointed uh, editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics in 2000. So I think it was 1998 when he and and uh, Jimmy Palmiotti came on board for the Marvel Knights launch. Yeah. And then that was successful. Eventually, Joe Quesada became editor-in-chief in 2000. And then, uh, so he was a key figure in this run. Another person that we should make note of is Axel Alonso. Yeah, yeah. He was uh, an, an editor who made his name uh, in the mid-late 90s at DC, uh, specifically their Vertigo imprint. Mm. And he joined Marvel in 2000 as well. Uh, in 2001, Alonso and Quesada wanted to revamp uh, the entire X-Men line of titles. Yeah. To, because they were always, you know, m- among Marvel's higher-selling comics, but they wanted to have some sort of critical success as well. Yeah. Because yeah. it, it wasn't like people were reading X-Men comics thinking, oh, yeah, this is some good stuff. It's really thoughtful yeah. and well-written. It was just, oh, I gotta get my X-Men fix, so yeah. I'm just gonna buy all the X-Men comics. Yeah. If it's got an X in the title, I'm buying it. Exactly. You know, but that's not that's not really what they wanted to continue propagating. That's why they got uh, Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely on new X-Men, yeah, which was they started, on our list. They started inviting in um, more, I guess, critically acclaimed writers to do um, the the straight X-Men line, you know. Yeah. For the longest time prior to that, we had guys like Scott Lobdell and Fabian Nassiza, which, if for our listeners who don't necessarily know, they were... 
if you're a fan of them, that's fine. But they 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 were kind of business as usual writers, you know. No They're, disrespect to Fabian Nasiza. Yeah, no disrespect. But yeah, just just for context. Yeah. But go ahead. Exactly. Yeah. So we that's why we had Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely on New X Men on on Uncanny X Men, the yeah. sister title. They had Joe Casey. Joe, Joe Casey, and then uh, at on X Force they decided to bring in Peter Milgan and Mike Allred. Yeah. So when Axel Alonso was at Vertigo, he edited uh, many notable and important series. So some of the titles that people might be familiar with would be like Preacher. You know that was one of the titles he edited. Uh, Hellblazer, Unknown Soldier by Garth Ennis, mm. One Hundred Bullets by Brian Azzarello and Eduardo Rizzo. Yeah, and he also edited Human Target, which was written by Peter Milligan. So Alonso would leave his mark at Marvel as well. He was able to hire these creators who <clears throat> hadn't really done too much work for Marvel or, or they weren't regarded as Marvel type of writers. Yeah. So, you know, he did something like uh, he edited a series like Spider-Man's Tangled Web, which yeah. is basically an anthology that featured a bunch of creators who didn't really do Marvel work. He, had, he got people like... Uh, Azarello and Rizzo to do stories. He got Garth Ennis to do Spider-Man story. He got Greg Rucka. He yeah. got Darwin Cook. He got Dean Hashbill. He got yeah. all these people that weren't really known for being uh, traditional Marvel people. Yeah. And even if it was just a couple issues here and there, that was a really good step in the right direction yeah. in terms of telling stories that were more creator-driven. More yeah. Maybe, maybe even... I guess to some extent, maybe more writer-driven, but yeah. but even like in terms of the artist, you know, he even got. I think Paul Pope did did a couple issues. Uh -huh. So there were a lot of uh, folks that Axel Alonso was able yeah. to bring on board at Marvel, yeah, definitely, and just open the door for them. So Peter Milligan, he's personally uh, one of my favorite writers of all time. Like I consider myself a student of comics, and <laughs> <laughs> homeschooled student homeschooled. of comics. <laughs> And yeah, my... I'm, I'm a big fan of Peter Milligan, and I read a lot of his work, uh, collect most of the things, pretty much everything that he's done. Yeah. Uh, he's a British writer who cut his teeth on 2000 AD. Uh, 2000 AD is this British science fiction comic. Uh, I think it's a weekly anthology that was very popular in, uh, back in the 80s. I mean, I guess it's still popular. It's still around, yeah. as far as I know. Uh, but it's, it's a British thing, uh, and back in the early 80s that was when he first started to break into comics he had a comic called bad company yeah which was a basically a futuristic uh, war story and then by the late 80s he began to get published in america part of that uh british invasion yeah so to speak yeah. so that was around the era when you had people like neil gaiman grant morrison Mark jamie delano mark miller or he might have been a little kind of predates mark miller a okay. bit like mark miller and and uh, Ennis and Warren Ellis, they were part of that second, second wave, wave. But yeah. like that first wave, you know, uh, Alan Davis would be another guy yeah. I would include in there. But yeah, Milligan came out of that. Uh, and he's known for writing postmodernist comics like Shade the Changing Man at uh, Vertigo in DC. Uh, so generally speaking, Peter Milligan, his work was known for being postmodernist, deconstructionist, mm. surreal, absurd witty humorous like dark humor yeah uh, but a lot of his stuff had really genuine emotional content yeah uh, so he wasn't just some guy who was all about formal experimentation but he he had a good balance between the formal experimentation pushing 
the writing aspect of the art form forward while maintaining that human connection as well to make sure you know whoever's reading this is going to be invested in in the story right right so it's not just uh an exercise in how talented he is as a writer (laughs) (laughs) he's yeah you could just see that he's a smart writer though and it shows in his work and one of his recurring pet themes is the theme of identity which is something that he touches in on he touches upon in ecstatics Mm. mike allred he's an american artist Prior to coming on board at X, on X Force, he was known for his excellent independent creator-owned work. Yeah. Uh, his specifically a comic called Madman. Yeah. Madman is the sort of existentialist uh, superhero. He's a gifted acrobat and fighter, and he's got some limited psionic abilities. But it's kind of like a throwback to Silver Age uh, superheroes, kind of good-natured and and told with a modern slant. Yeah. The thing about Mike Allred is that he wrote and drew that, so he he was also a writer in, on his own merits, but his, yeah. his artwork and most of his art was colored by his wife, Laura Allred. Yeah. Their work together looked like pop art from the 90s, or from the 60s, is yeah. how I would describe it. Yeah. So, I think it's fair to say, back in the early 2000s, there weren't really any Marvel or DC comics, for that matter, that looked much like the Allreds comics. Definitely. Just different. It was a different style that was kind of a throwback to the past. It's definitely a testament to what you were saying earlier about how uh, Joe Quesada's introduction into the Marvel Universe also kind of opened the floodgates for new talent that was already existing in the comics industry but just hadn't really had much to do with Marvel. Yeah. You know, so like having Mike Allred on on such a big title as something like X-Force was it, it's pretty unexpected yeah like, it is at the at the time it was pretty unexpected yeah. you know I mean he had done some mainstream stuff like I, I remember he did uh, a little bit of Sandman at least one issue of Sandman for Neil Gaiman back in the 90s yeah but he, that's even he did a couple of yeah. Vertigo comics he yeah. even he did he did do this one issue of Untold Tales of Spider-Man with Kurt Busiek. He did an annual. <laughs> nice. That was a good issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, like for the most part, you didn't see his work. Yeah. Because it, it made sense for that Spider-Man comic because that Spider-Man comic was... That series, Untold Tales of Spider-Man, was a series of Spider-Man comics that were a throwback to the 60s era yeah, of Spider-Man. Yeah. So it, it made sense to have that kind of art style yeah. for it. But you wouldn't expect Mike Allred to yeah. draw X-Force. Yeah, let's just say that in terms of the people that most, uh, the writers and artists that most people would have naturally associated with something like a title like X Force, yeah, like Mike Allred was not that guy. His his art style was like you said, it's more poppy and it's it's almost cartoony. You yeah, know? It's, definitely cartoony. It's, it's it's cartoony and it's just comical and it's fun. Yeah. So it's. It's not it's not a bunch of guys gritting their teeth and like flexing their muscles, you yeah, know. Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> exactly. So, uh, like we said when this when their run first began, this comic was still titled X-Force. The first run the first issue of their run was X-Force number 116, <coughs> which was published in July 2001 under the X-Force name. The series continued up through issue 129. And then it was immediately relaunched under the title Ecstatics 
in September of 2002. Ecstatics lasted 26 issues, ending in 2004. And then in 2006, they came back and, and did a five-issue miniseries entitled Ecstatics Presents Dead Girl. Dead Girl was one of the characters yeah. in Ecstatics. So we, we talked a little bit about what X-Force was like before Milligan and Allred. Uh, it was basically a proactive and violent paramilitary super team. Yeah. Uh, right before they came on board, uh, Warren Ellis, about a year before they, this started, he had done like a soft relaunch of the team, yeah. making them sort of this uh, black ops uh, military strike team. Yeah. Which like was, a big it was part solid, of, but yeah. you know, it, it was it was uh this was a total change in direction. Yeah. With no warning. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I was going to say it, uh, up to that point in history, the the running theme of X-Force was, you know, yeah, we're we're a proactive paramilitary team that goes in and takes out, you know, threats that Yeah. You know, it, it it's like the team from Predator, basically, <laughs> with Arnold and um, what's his name? Uh, Man, you've really been thinking about Predator have, a lot lately. I have. <laughs> what's his name? Apollo Creed. <laughs> uh, do you mind going giving a brief synopsis of what this current uh, or what this iteration of X Force was about? What made it so different from all the other versions that came before it? Okay, so first of all. None of the previously established cast was involved in the book. If, in fact, if you read X-Force number 115, the way it ends, there's no real indication of what happens to those characters. Uh, it just You just read the end of their story, and then you, you get the next issue where Milligan and Allred start, and you're like, what the heck is this? Yeah. Like, this is... How come this wasn't... Like, I think nowadays that would have just been a new number one issue, you know? Yeah. Because it, it, it was that much of a 180-degree... It was, direction. it was a hard stop. <laughs> yeah, it was a total hard stop. Yeah. So the, the premise of the Milligan Allred X-Force is that the team is no longer a paramilitary strike force that's out to stop the threats that nobody else knows about uh, or th- threats that are somehow related to, to mutants. and They the don't extreme. go out uh, meeting out extreme justice. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, this X-Force... They still call themselves X-Force, but it was comprised of basically attention-seeking uh, mutant celebrities. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of a cross between uh, a reality show and a superhero comic. Yeah. The interesting thing, as I was thinking about what what makes this comic so subversive, is that when you think about the X-Men, the X-Men, their whole tagline is basically they're sworn to protect a world that hates and fears them. Yeah. Right. But this new X force, their tagline is more, well, they wouldn't have a tagline, but if they did, it would be more like they're somewhat committed to protect a world that loves and reveres them, (laughs) you know, because they're out there. They're, they're famous mutants. Yeah. uh, And the only reason they're famous is because they're part of X force. Yeah. So it's kind of this, the, like if you read the comic, it's, it's basically, uh, a commentary on celebrity culture you yeah know, nowadays i guess even back then there were people who were famous who are for not doing anything or contributing anything to society but yeah they were just famous because they were famous like yeah a, like your paris hilton's or i guess now it'd be like your kardashians yeah you know th- what do they actually do nothing yeah they're just famous yeah um so the characters in x-force they're they're mutants who join this team there's basically like the backstory is there's basically a 
a rich investor who who owns this team. Yeah. He 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 uh, calls his team X Force and does these tryouts. Yeah. Uh, and you know this is all broadcast and and made into a reality TV show where people can vote on their favorites yeah. and whatnot and like the cream of the crop of these mutants end up making the team. Yeah. And then every so often, uh, this team gets paid to take on dangerous missions. Yeah. Like the very first issue of their, their story, for example, the team gets sent to protect this boy band. Yeah. Who, for some reason is under attack by these terrorists. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It really does feel like the, the thing that sticks out to me is that a lot of their, a lot of the drama that Peter Milligan sort of that that Peter Milligan puts into the into their narrative it revolves around kind of the the business aspect of marketing themselves yeah. you know it's a lot of it's it's not just that they have interpersonal conflicts with one another or that they have these conflicts with external forces like you know, mutant haters or evil mutants or whatever. They're, I, it, they have those too, but a large part of their uh, conflict revolves around the fact that, oh, is this going to look good in the press? Yeah. Or how does this affect our brand? Yep. Stuff like that, yeah. you know, which, which is not only just different from what X-Force was, but it's pretty different from what any, any comic yeah. I've ever seen. Could you imagine if Spider-Man had patches all over him and he had to be concerned about uh his sponsors whenever he tried to fight a supervillain like if he had to swing in there and be, he'd be like i can't fight these guys because they're using petroleum and one of my biggest sponsors is you know chevron <laughs> like you know <laughs> yeah and on top of that you had personalities where the individual characters would care about how popular they were yeah. relative to their teammates. Yeah. So there'd be a lot of petty jealousies and, and little infighting and people taking jabs at each other. Uh, and yeah, just a lot of people, a lot of characters who were concerned about how they were perceived by the public because all they really cared about, most of the characters, all they really cared about was their fame and their celebrity status. Yeah. And they wanted to do anything they could to sort of preserve that and even increase their fame and popularity. The other thing that I want to mention is uh, the unique uh, mutant powers that each of these characters had. Because these are characters that, that aren't really... You know, they don't really have so-and-so, so-called cool powers, you know? Yeah. Like, they're not, like... They're it's just, not a they're fire kind of, guy or a nice weird. guy. They're kind yeah. of weird and, and offbeat, a little bizarre. Their powers are bizarre, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and, it, and it fits the, the tone of these stories because... I would describe the tone as uh, a s- satirical, but yeah. it's it's Milligan and Allred tell a satirical story about superhero mutants, but they don't do it in a mean way. Yeah, they're, somehow they're able to do it in a way that pokes fun at what they're talking about, but also you can tell that they have some degree of affection for it. You know, yeah. it's not like you know, it's not like the boys by Garth Ennis, where like the whole thing is a diatribe against superheroes as a concept making fun of them let's put it this way if if milligan was to write a story about these characters where all he did was just crap on them just to show us how absurd they were it'd be a different comic like he like 
I, yeah, him as a writer, he he has to have. I I think he has to at least believe enough in these characters in order for us to believe in these characters. You know, at mm-hmm. the, at the root of what what we love about superhero comics in general, right? Yeah. So that that totally makes sense to Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think making us care about these characters is one of the things that they really succeeded in over the course of their run. Yeah. Because all of these characters are new characters that they created specifically for X-Force and Ecstatics. So they didn't have to be concerned about preserving these characters for the next creators to yeah. write about. They didn't have to be concerned about... Continuity. Continuity. Like, yeah, they, they took the stories took place in the X-Men or in the Marvel Universe, but they they it didn't really matter like everything that they did uh you know they they hardly ever told stories that really involved the greater marvel universe i mean towards the end there was a story where they fought the avengers yeah you know wolverine shows up here and there but you know that's about it you don't really need to read anything else or know anything else about yeah. the marvel universe in order to appreciate the story because it all stands on the its conse- own their consequences are pretty self-contained i'd say yeah, yeah. and there are consequences because yeah. this is a team of people who who aren't they're not really trained soldiers or anything but they're going out to these battles where yeah their lives are imperiled because they have powers powers, yeah but they're not always uh immune to danger you know they're the very first issue uh milligan and allred introduce the team they build up the team and then they go on this mission like i said to to this uh tower where they have to rescue a boy band from these uh gunmen yeah (laughs) and this team is obviously uh, dysfunctional. Yeah. Most of them don't really know how to fight. If they didn't have powers, they'd be completely worthless. <laughs> <laughs> and most of them end up getting killed. Yeah. At the end of the first issue, yeah. only two people survive. <laughs> How's that for a twist? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you spend the entire issue introducing the the new team and everybody dies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's one of the things that... Uh, kind of set the tone for the the run where you, you understood that nobody was safe yeah any of these characters could die at any moment uh from any mission so there It'll, was definitely yeah. a good it was definitely a good way of how they helped you get invested in the story as a reader because yeah. they, they were able to tell a story where they made you care about these characters and then they could cruelly take away these characters from yeah. you at any time. It also made it more real. Yeah. You know, like, uh, a lot of the times the in the mainstream X-Books, these characters are pretty sacred. And if they do die, at some point, They're someone will back. find a way to come make them come back. Yeah. But, you know, you didn't get that with this. Yeah. <laughs> with Ecstatics. You really yeah. didn't. Do you want to go into the the technical craft of the book a little bit? Yeah, let's talk about the craft. So, I would say Milligan and Allred, uh, and most of the other artists that worked on on the series, they're all definitely masters of their respective crafts. But Milligan and Allred together, they had a specific chemistry synergy. Yeah, yeah. specific chem- chemistry that was apparent <clears throat> from the very first page of the first issue. Yeah, uh, Milligan's writing, he. He's very witty, uh, very funny too. Uh, just some some bits of little social commentary here and there. Like, yeah, they're 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 funny because they're kind of like little gags, but at at the same time, there's they're also uh, you know truth behind them too. And I think that's what makes 
that's what makes uh, some of those jokes really f- effective. Yeah. So as as a writer, he's just able to do the satirical take on superheroes that isn't mean spirited, even though there may be occasional bouts of uh, cynicism. He does take the piss out of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there's uh, this one scene I remember where they had this character who was more or less Eminem. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he was talking about how hard his life was, what it was like growing up on the mean streets, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then a couple of pages later, you find out he had a loving mother and father. Yeah. <laughs> he was just this really normal kid who just, a uh, w- normal, well-adjusted kid. Yeah. And he just needed to do all that just to, you know, uh, prop up this image of him as this, like... It was like, just his backstory. It was just, exactly. It's it was all, just his backstory. marketing purposes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah, there's just a lot of uh, funny stuff like that that he that uh, they they throw in there. Yeah, um, I was trying to look for some highlights here, uh, just flipping through. Like, th- there's this there was a scene I remember uh, where the team is introducing uh, a new member. Uh, so at this point, the team's like five characters, and they're bringing in the sixth guy. Uh, you know what? Maybe we should talk a little bit about the characters, like the the core cast of the series, a bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you did mention earlier that their power sets were pretty unique and pretty bizarre. Yeah. So it, yeah. If we're gonna talk about that, then we definitely should go into what the powers actually yeah. are and who the characters actually are. We that should, totally we makes sense. We ex- should definitely uh, ex- give some context to our listeners because yeah. these are pretty obscure characters. They are. They are. So. The the biggest characters of the book uh, are their names are the anarchist, the orphan, and you go girl. Yeah, yeah. So even their names are pretty funny. Like yeah. whoever thought of a superhero named the anarchist, but his he's he's this uh, black dude who has the power of explosive sweat. Yeah, acid sweat. Acid sweat. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you got Mister Sensitive, who's he's he looks weird. He's got all these little like pores on his skin. And he's got these two antenna protruding from his forehead. His name is Guy Smith. And he, he actually has two names throughout the series. He goes by Mr. Sensitive. And he also goes by The Orphan. Mm. But his power is that he's extremely sensitive to everything. Yeah. So he has to wear this special suit that Professor Xavier designed for him. That kind of helps dull his senses so that he isn't overcome by the slightest breeze. Yeah. Or... Uh, I don't know, somebody could sneeze on him. If he didn't yeah. have his suit on, it would hurt because he's too sensitive to force. Yeah, but this extra sensitivity also gives him almost a mastery of his surrounding. Yeah. Like, you know, he he knows, like, how to hurt you with but a touch, Yeah, basically. Like, he knows where all of your uh, pressure points are, that sort of thing, yeah. you know? Or, heck, if you're, if you're scared or nervous, he'll detect a change in your body temperature or yeah. your heart beating a little faster or, or yeah. something you know like there's there's almost Theor- no limit theoretically it makes him kind of the perfect field leader i guess yeah yeah, yeah. as long as <clears throat> nobody messes up his suit yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> actually there's a funny story that we'll, we can get to uh, about his powers later on uh but we'll save that the, the other character that's pretty important is you go girl yeah and the, and her power is teleportation She's the team's uh, teleporter. Yeah. Gets them in and out of situations. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the catch is that teleportation takes a lot out of her, so she gets tired and 
And what she ends up doing is she takes these, uh, I guess they're, no, they're drugs. She yeah. takes these drugs that they're like hoppers to kind of keep up her energy level and keep her awake so that she doesn't fall asleep after she takes them into a dangerous mission. Yeah. But, uh, you know, celebrities and drugs. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's a bad mix. It's, yeah, it's, it's a clever way to write that into their, uh... I guess recreational activity. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it makes sense if you look at them as athletes or, you know, the same way that athletes need to take painkillers constantly in yeah. order to, to function. Like it's, I think it's a apt comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. A uh, couple of other key characters. There's a guy named Vivisector. He's basically this really uh, quiet bookworm dude who also has the power to transform into a werewolf. Yeah. It's probably one of the more traditional power sets. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are a couple of funny stories about that guy. From the, the one main thing that I remember is he ends up having... he Him and another character on the team end up having a intimate homosexual relationship, primarily for the purposes of getting attention so that they could uh market themselves that much more but then they eventually begin to have actual feelings for one another (laughs) uh which it's it's uh yeah it's a weird way to work that romance into the story but you know it's clever (laughs) yeah yeah and and the character that he had the relationship with was the eminem kind of character yeah yeah, yeah. The, the tough you know yeah thuggy sort of dude (laughs) white dude yeah thuggy white dude yeah so this character that character's name is fat p-h-a-t yep because he could control his fat (laughs) (laughs) f-a-t yeah basically his power was to control his fat so he could turn into like a a blob and like use it to he was stretch and slap people around he was kind of a shape-shifty version of the blob yeah 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 and then the the other important character is dupe yeah, he's kind of their cameraman and their mascot. Yeah. But he's also... We don't ever really know what he can do, but he's considered one of the most powerful members of the team. Yeah, we're not even sure if he's a male or a female, but yeah. but uh, he is basically a floating, gigantic green potato with arms. Interesting. I was going to go jelly bean, but yeah. Oh, jelly bean. Yeah, <laughs> jelly bean works too. Yeah. That's kind of what he is, and, and he has the Ecstatics logo tattooed on his belly. Yeah. Uh, he... When he speaks, he doesn't speak. In he has his own English. language. He, yeah, he has his own language. Yeah. So the letterers give. They created a special font for him. Yeah. Uh, and most most people don't really have any idea what he's saying. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes they do. Anyway, he like he, like Albert said, he's dupe is a really powerful character, and he ended up becoming one of the more. Uh, lasting characters too yeah. he's, he's, he i guess you could say he's the breakout character he yeah they eventually gave him a couple of miniseries from what i remember yeah yeah, yeah he was popular yeah. enough to to end up in other comics after ecstatics ended i wanted to just uh talk about the art a little bit uh so you mentioned earlier that uh mike alred does give them sort of a poppy look yeah um the thought that i took note of earlier was that i really it mike alred really does bring an element of indie art style into marvel comics Mm -hmm. because up to this point again like we were mentioning like 
um, a lot of the artists that had worked on this book prior were guys like Rob Liefeld, you know, just people who were really all about the aesthetic of just, you know, big muscles, big guns, and a lot of cross-hatching. Patches. Patches. Pouches. Pouches, exactly, what have you. But if you can imagine the art style, I I would say it kind of harbors back to kind of more classic artists like uh, John Romita Sr. or Mm -hmm. Jack Kirby or even Storanko. Yeah, Alex Toth. Yeah, Alex Toth. But with a very, but with really modern sensibilities, you know. Yeah. And uh, to go back to what you were saying about the characters, the 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 element of it that makes it modern is that, again, it their their power sets are so unique and bizarre, and they exhibit themselves in such original ways that these aren't your traditional good-looking superheroes. Like, if you can imagine Cyclops, he's a good-looking cat with, like, a visor, and that's kind of his thing, you know? Whereas here you've got... all. There's this uh, character named Venus de Milo who's basically just a a torso with uh, floating arms and legs and crackling energy in between. Yeah, she's basically, like, she only exists as energy or gas and, yeah. and she has to wear this suit that gives her like the form a of form. a person yeah 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 i'm glad you mentioned venus because she's also an important character in, in the series yeah um but oh the other character we got to mention is dead girl yeah i mean her name pretty much says it all yeah she's <laughs> she's dead but she's, <laughs> she's uh part of the team and she has the power to communicate with dead people um if you no matter how many times you mess her up, she'll just come back because she's already dead. Yeah. <laughs> but she, the way that Mike Allred drew her, she basically looks like a female version of Madman. <laughs> yeah. And I also did want to mention that a, a large contribution to what makes this uh, such a modern-looking, like, what establishes this as a more modern-looking version of um, the more classic artist is Laura Allred's coloring. Mm-hmm. Like, it's... If you look at the book, it's really super vibrant, and, like, all the colors just kind of jump out at you. It's a really, really pretty-looking book. Yeah. Yeah. It's exceptionally good-looking. Yeah. I was going to say uh, earlier, before we got into describing all the characters, uh, just as an example of some of the funny writing that Milligan uh, threw into the story, just uh, there's a scene how... Uh, the characters, some of the characters are intro- at a press conference and they're about to introduce a new character, a new team member. So you got the anarchist, you got uh, Fat and Vivisector, You Go Girl, and Mister Sensitive, and they're just at and Dupe, and they're at this press conference about to uh, introduce this new member. Uh, and it turns out that uh, this guy uh, named Spike, who's another uh, black dude. His power is he shoots spikes, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like a porcupine or something, you know. Yeah, like he he's all like stating his case about why he he belongs on this team. Yeah, and and the anarchist, you know, he he has a real serious problem with that. And then yeah. later on, when um when the anarchist is talking with his fellow teammates about you know how come you you have this problem with the spike, you really don't want him on the team. Yeah, anarchist basically says, man, haven't you seen the movies? There can only be one black guy on a yeah. team. Otherwise, one guy's going to die. Yeah. And, like, so we got to make sure he stays out or else I'm going to eat it, you know? Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's just little things like that, that. It's pretty funny commentary. It's, it's funny, man. It's yeah. a funny observation on 
just that sort of storytelling, you yeah. know? Yeah. <laughs> Milligan acknowledges the trope and pokes some fun at it. Yeah. What Do were you w- about to say? Oh, uh, well, I was going to move on to the... Well, did you have more to say? Uh, Yeah, I was going to say also in terms of craft, I think what really elevated this series was that they had so much creative freedom. Yeah. You could tell that that uh, Axel Alonso and Joe Quesada were committed to giving the creative team the power to create yeah. whatever they wanted. Because uh, I think even Milligan had, had said that when he was offered this job, he was kind of like, why would you want me to, to do this? You know, yeah. almost like a thing where it was unusual. Yeah. Um, but the fact that they gave him so much free reign to to do whatever they wanted, you know, that that was definitely a good selling point. Yeah. You could, you could it makes see, a lot of sense. Yeah, you could see that having creative freedom, when you let good creators do what they want to do, you end up with really good stories. You, you end up with really good comics. Yeah. The only time that um, they were hampered was uh, <laughs> towards the end of their, their run, they were going to do a story featuring Princess Diana. And keep in mind, this is... Uh, like 2000 probably around 2002 yeah so I guess it was what like five years since she died yeah and I guess I guess it was uh, too still too raw in some people's minds and it, it, their story was she was gonna come back from the dead and join ecstatics because her I guess her fame was like a mutant power you know (laughs) her fame was so powerful it brought her back to life (laughs) essentially yeah but i guess when marvel previewed the book or somehow word leaked out the british tabloids got wind of it and it it kind of started this brouhaha and and then people took offense or yeah i think you know i don't remember if it was uh like buckingham palace or anybody but i guess someone who was notable or powerful enough like started complaining and then marvel ended up deciding okay we can't have princess die in our comic so they had to change the story a little bit change i think they made her like a like a britney spears type or something like that yeah they just made her a pop singer yeah like it it was still a good story but you could tell that it kind of sapped the wind out of the sails a bit yeah it and to me as a reader knowing that context it it makes me kind of upset yeah to know that these people who don't even read comics bullied Marvel into changing their story. Yeah. And I think it was one of the big things that led to Peter Milligan ultimately just having a lot of dissatisfaction. Like it, it's something that stuck with him moving yeah, forward. I'm, I'm pretty sure it stuck with both of them. Yeah. Like it, that had to have bothered them. Like I, yeah. I, I don't like, it's been a while since I've read interviews with them Yeah, that were contemporary to the time. But, uh, you know, if I had to guess, I would, I mean, I would be upset. Like, that would make me yeah. mad. As a reader, I'm upset yeah. just knowing about it. Kind of disappointed that they didn't fix it for the omnibus. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh. But, yeah. What, what can you say? I mean, they did the best they could with, with everything, uh, considering the circumstances. Yeah. Another thing that I want to talk about in terms of how great their craft was, was... Do you remember Nuff Said? Yes, I do. It was... Uh, so, Nuff Said was this line-wide uh, not really event but was it an event i don't know how i guess you could call it an initiative a month-long okay. like a month-long initiative or i guess event yeah so the the premise of it was that every book 
in the Marvel uh, library for that month was going to have a silent issue where there would be no text and people would just have to no, tell no no dialogue no, no dialogue captions. no captions yeah and the story would be told uh only through the art right essentially so yeah go go ahead and uh, describe the enough said issue well first of all i got to say that that enough said issue along with grant morrison and frank quietly's enough said issue those two are definitely the cream of the crop definitely if you look at a lot of those enough said issues that came out that month a lot of them, you could tell that they were just the story that the team had plan- been planning to tell that month, but they just removed all the words. <laughs> so it was like this, you feel, if, it kind of felt like you got robbed, you know, yeah. like you got gypped because yeah. clearly, you know, the team on <clears throat> Thor would, or whatever, you know, they weren't really excited about what they were doing and they were like, okay, we're f- our bosses told us we have to do this, so yeah. I don't want to disrupt my normal story, so I'm just going to do a story. And just take out the words, but you know, whatever. In, yeah. in the hands of a different, of a of a lesser artist, you know, it's just gonna be whatever. Yeah. And and I guess you could follow it, but you don't really. You're missing something because you're you're not getting any of the words. But with uh, the ecstatics, well, the X Force issue that Milligan and Allred did, they were able to tell a really clever story without the need of words. And the premise of of their issue was that dupe that super powerful spud yeah uh jelly bean potato looking <laughs> dude he's he and the rest of the team they're just chilling in their in their headquarters their mansion or tower whatever it is yeah penthouse and they're they're hanging out in the living room some people are reading books some people are i don't know talking to each other or whatever uh and then you got dupe he's standing in f- floating in front of a mirror and yeah. he sees he's got this pimple and he ends up deciding to pop his pimple but yeah when he pops his pimple he creates this uh, vacuum vacuum and it sucks everybody in the room into, into his head into his head yeah <laughs> into this alternate dimension that resides yeah. inside his head yeah in his pimple yeah <laughs> and it's up to dupe to try and rescue them so he he has to basically turn himself inside out so he can go inside his own body that's pretty <laughs> crazy the world yeah and then just rescue everybody who's experiencing <laughs> these crazy hallucinations right it's basically everybody's worst fear manifested right inside this pocket dimension and dupe has to rescue them and he rescues them before one second passes in the real world right <laughs> i remember that yeah that was a really fun issue yeah <laughs> i mean that that's just the, the premise of the issue you guys gotta read the issue to to really appreciate yeah the full impact but that's when i think about the, how the mastery of their craft that's an issue that i would point to because milligan and allred tell a story within these bizarre constraints right like it's it's such an artificial imposition to say write this comic but don't use any words in the comic you can only have artwork tell the story and that's a that's a it's definitely a creative challenge milligan and allred embraced that challenge yeah they didn't they didn't worry about making it connect with everything else that had they had been building up to instead they just decided we're gonna tell a story that's self-contained and it's gonna make sense why there's no talking yeah because everybody's just sucked into this world where they can't talk and you got to figure out what's going on um and the way that mike allred and and laura allred depict everything is just so it makes sense like you don't have to have words to describe or to tell you uh 
where you are because everything is just so clearly laid out in the on the page you yeah, can yeah, follow yeah. it and you can feel the movement you can feel the excitement you can feel the bewilderment the the characters the facial fear. expressions yeah their fears yeah seeing the fear on their face yeah yeah they really are Every, able yeah. were able to tell an awesome story without words yeah it's it's a definitely a, a it was definitely a story that is only enhanced because Mike Alred is just so good at what he does. Yeah, <laughs> totally. You know? Yeah, totally. And if you ever get the chance, um, you can read this story. Uh, there's an omnibus, and I think there there are also individual trade paperbacks and hardcovers. But I don't really remember how easy it is to get them now. But in the in the omnibus, there's they actually have the the original script to that issue, mm. and it's a fun read too. You yeah. know, you, the way that Peter Milligan breaks wrote, it down wrote it down yeah. um even though his like visually his role is kind of minimized but you know that he put a lot of thought into the story as well and and all and earlier we mentioned how he and Alred had just had this chemistry like that i mean that's exhibit number one right there yeah. you know they were they were on the same page in terms of telling this mind-blowing story that was a trip yeah. The other thing that I also wanted to mention that I feel is worth mentioning uh, in regards to the craft of X-Force slash Ecstatics and their entire run is this was a incredibly consistent book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a significant chunk of issues done by Peter Milligan and Mike Alred. We did mention earlier that there's an occasional guest artist here and there with uh, Darwin Cook or yeah. um, Mike Dragata. Nick Dragata. Nick Dragata. Yeah. yeah. So there, like, a lot of the. So we mentioned earlier in our podcast, one of our earlier mentions was uh, Grant Morrison's X Men, which, uh, which was a, still a very good series, but a, a lot of the things that hurt, or one of the things that hurt that series was that it was, they had so many different artists on it mm-hmm. that if you tried to read that entire epic in one sitting it's noticeable yeah you know whereas with ecstatics mike alred does most of it uh like if not all like not all of it but definitely a significant portion of the series you know and even the the fill-in artists that they do get are very talented and share a similar uh aesthetic to uh, to mike alred you know like it it's not like they picked artists that that were wildly off of the style of the book as a whole yeah 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 so i i thought that was worth mentioning yeah that's definitely worth mentioning yeah i wonder if if we have to give that up to the editor on that for picking the artists that suited the style yeah i'm not i'm not sure who who was in charge of those decisions but yeah, it it does definitely makes reading the entire thing in one fat chunk. It gives a it lot a, more palatable. Yeah, it gives it a cohesive just look yeah. all the way through. Especially you know all these years later when you buy something like an omnibus where it's just a, a dictionary sized collection of the the entire story of yeah. the entire epic from start to finish. Yeah. You know, it's consistent and uh, you know I don't I don't know about how other comic readers enjoy their comics but consistency is at least visual consistency for me is it matters it matters it 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 helps yeah you know do you want to talk about the originality of the book at all yeah do you have anything to say on that 
Uh, I think we somewhat touched a bit already on the originality, just in terms of the visual appeal and the visual look of the yeah. artwork and and the characters, the the way that you know their their powers are, the how different they are from everything, all the other superheroes that we're familiar with. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I just I would just reiterate that there wasn't anything else like this. They yeah. took an X Men comic and completely subverted it. Yeah. Um. But what they had to say uh, is what stands out. I think when we think about originality, yeah. I think about the things that they were communicating through their work that we didn't and don't often see <clears throat> in superhero comics uh, back then and today. Yeah, absolutely. And that was their commentary on our celebrity-obsessed culture. Yeah. I think a lot of the things that they had to say, they, they were true back then and they're just as true today yeah i was thinking about that the other night if anything it's more true with yeah. with basically a celebrity in the white house i mean yeah <laughs> you know like it just goes to show a lot of um a lot of peter milligan's commentary was just about how it, it's interesting because it's these characters are really vapid yeah but at the same time the the thing that strikes me is about the way Peter Milligan wrote these characters is I would say that ecstatics is a book that's about sincerity and cynicism mm. because so much of these characters, uh, surface motivations are so shallow, yeah. you know, it's really about, uh, you know, how do we market ourselves? How do we like it again? This isn't your typical X book where I think it's fair to say that with your, um, typical x book a lot of it is about the struggle of you know the mutant minority and just survival in this world yeah. you know whereas for the ecstatics it's it's about well how do i get you know how do i get to be on a magazine or how do i get yeah. you know a movie role or like how do we keep ourselves in the in the public consciousness just so that we're relevant that's their relevancy you know is yeah. like how do i maintain popularity mm -hmm. so so though the one uh, issue that i wanted to or not even an issue the one cover that i wanted to highlight that idea of cynicism sincerity and uh or, or the not not sincerity and cynicism but the the one issue that i wanted that i felt highlighted their cynicism is issue 120 of x-force and it's literally an issue where it's just wolverine on the cover <laughs> sitting on a pool table just going uh you know i'm only doing this to boost sales <laughs> and that's kind of it's it's a pretty meta joke yeah. because it's a it's a dig at the idea that whenever you put wolverine on anything it increases sales yep. it doesn't matter what it is yep. and it's yeah it's seriously meta because it's it's a, here's a book that's trying to tell some trying to do something different with the with the uh medium of superheroes or the medium of comics or superhero comics but at the same time they they understand what your average what compels your average comics reader or purchaser to to buy comics yeah you know yeah like uh, somebody can walk into a store and just be like i want something with wolverine on it yep. and there you go <laughs> issue 120 of x-force he's on right on the cover yep. you know 
But at the same time, um, Peter Milligan still has the the uh, artistic talent and skill to still take that cynicism and tell a story that's substantive and meaningful, even in spite of the fact that, again, all of their motivations are just so shallow. Yeah. You know? Um, back to the idea of sincerity and cynicism, again, like... All, they, there's a lot of drama that exists within this book and for all intents and purposes they're not really they're for, on the surface they're superheroes but th- here's how I look at it what if you took the cast of the Jersey Shore and made them superheroes <laughs> that's essentially what this book is but Mike uh, or, or Peter Milligan and Mike Alred still find a way to give these guys heart and yeah. they still have loss people still die and they still they find a way to take these celebrities again back to my uh, uh, comparison uh, like imagine if you could take the cast of the jersey shore and if you found a way to make them noble you know <laughs> like if you found Probably a way I've never watched jersey shore but that sounds funny well i've never watched it either but from what you see of commercials or yeah. even like news articles, yeah. I have a feeling that that's all you really need to know about them. You <laughs> yeah. know, there's not much depth to them. Yeah, but I, it's almost like Milligan was given or or was tasking himself with the challenge of how do I take these people that, for all intents and, pur- and purposes, should be super unlikable. Yeah, and how do I like make you the reader like them? Yeah, and how do like make you see the heroism in them? And that's what he does. Like they're not always perfect. They're not. Yeah, a, you know, a lot of them are neurotic, insecure. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely. But somehow you just end up caring, and, and I, yeah, I, I guess I'm about to spoil uh, one of the big events <laughs> of of the book. But I want to talk about the character You Go Girl. Yeah. Um, yeah. Her name is Eddie Sawyer, and like Eddie like, or Edie. I don't know. I thought it was Eddie. Okay. I don't know how you pronounce it. Maybe it's Edie. It's all good. It's all good. I'll just call her You Go Girl. Sorry. I didn't mean to yeah. interrupt. I was just being neurotic. <laughs> <laughs> this is the perfect comic for folks like us. <laughs> We're freaks too. <laughs> so, You Go Girl basically starts off as that sort of vapid, celebrity-obsessed character, right? She She's even treacherous at some points because yeah, she, she's looking to leverage her own popularity yeah, she's throughout the She's backstabbing her teammates in various yeah. ways. Not not killing them, but just doing things to... Love, make them yeah, look bad. To make them look bad, to yeah. make herself look better yeah. and in, increase her own fame and her, her own status. But even despite all that, somehow you end up caring about her she ends up having a relationship with uh, Guy Smith, uh, Mr. Sensitive. They become a couple, and and as as Milligan and Allred tell their story, uh, you see more depth to her character. You know that she, yeah, she's this. She's got a lot of insecurities, and she's she she's totally capable of doing things that aren't very kind or or thoughtful to other people. But there is something inside of her that is worth. Uh, redeeming you know there's something inside of this character that makes you want her to succeed despite herself yes and and you're you're rooting for her to i guess to get over these character flaws so she can be like a real hero yeah so to speak yeah um and 
and you get to a point in the story where it really seems like everything is is moving towards that direction where she's about to you know she's turn about things to have around her moment. and she's gonna have her moment yeah and then there's a story arc where uh basically one of the covers has this hand that points at the team and says one of you is going to die it's very dramatic it's very very <laughs> dramatic <laughs> and being that we've already seen a bunch of people die uh now we're we can take that seriously yeah, we can take that seriously exactly yeah. and then they they tell a story where you think that guy smith is gonna die or you think tyke you think that uh the anarchist is gonna die or maybe you go girl is gonna die and at the very end of it uh it, it seems like they're all safe but then after that they kill you go girl yeah in a pretty brutal dramatic fashion yeah and that was always one of the moments that stood out to me because yeah i felt like i i was emotionally invested in her arc i felt like i wanted to see her succeed in achieving her her goals because she was maturing you know she wasn't always going to be that stuck up vapid celebrity obsessed person yeah you know maybe to some extent that would always be there yeah but, yeah, yeah but you could see that she wasn't as bad as she could be yeah that she she was gonna she was getting better as a character more likable and when they finally when they killed her i was like dang that was that hurt yeah it's it's kind of it's a testament to his skill as a writer just to be like i'm gonna Again, I'm going to take this person, and I'm yeah. going to make you care about him, and then I'm going to break your heart. <laughs> yup. He, he ripped out my heart, man. Yeah. They ripped out my heart. That That's one. That's probably one of the few comics that ever made me cry. Yeah. That issue where... It's moving. Yeah. It's really issue moving. issue where she dies. Yeah. So I, I think, just in terms of originality, you know, there's very few comics that are able to very few superhero comics that are able to take the time to introduce a character, uh, build up the character, showing, showing you her, her flaws and her foibles, but also being able to tell a story, uh, about character growth. Yeah. Also ties into the themes of the overall narrative of the entire series while leaving you, you know, an emotional wreck. Yeah. It was uh, it was definitely a very unique voice that Milligan and uh, Alred brought to to the X universe, if not the Marvel comics, Marvel universe as a whole. You know, yeah. it's, it's it was again um, these were creators who were accustomed to working either in independent comics or for for Peter Milligan. Uh, he came from he, he. You mentioned earlier he had come from he had done some mainstream stuff but it was like vertigo Mm -hmm. which is it's mainstream but at the same time it's more adult oriented yeah you know so to apply that to something like ecstatics or yeah an x book Mm -hmm. it's 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 unexpected but it was it's a marvelous yeah uh a byproduct you know like to really see how that final product looks when when you take those unexpected things and apply it to it yeah yeah and i also wanted to mention the the miniseries that they did uh the dead girl miniseries that came out a couple years after the main series ended i think for this one uh 
Nick Dragata ended up penciling it and Mike Allred could only ink it. But it still has that, like you mentioned, that unified aesthetic uh, visual look. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't look too far off from the, the main series. But that that's that Dead Girl miniseries uh, also had some funny meta-commentary meta about uh, superhero comics and how popularity determines who lives and who dies. <laughs> because... Anyone who reads superhero comics knows that characters die all the time, but they also get resurrected all the time. Yeah. So they're always people are always dying and coming back. But what <clears throat> what really forces them to come back is how much the fans want yeah. them to be back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that that dead girl story. At, so at the very last issue of Ecstatics, the entire team gets killed. Yeah. Um. Spoiler alert, I guess, for a comic <laughs> that came out like 14, 15 years ago. <laughs> but this Dead Girl comic, uh, because Dead Girl is already dead, she it, it follows her in the realm of the dead. And, and it's also a funny team up with Doctor Strange. Yeah. Which I thought was pretty amusing because Peter Milligan, for some reason, he decided to give Doctor Strange hemorrhoids. <laughs> and Doctor Strange can't stop talking about it during the series. <laughs> it, was, it was funny. But uh, they end up visiting... I don't know if it was called the Realm of the Dead or Limbo or whatever, but it yeah. was just where all the dead characters ended up. And, yeah. and you just see all these characters talking about how, hey, man, if, if I get really popular, maybe I'll come back. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but even that had a pretty down ending from what I remember. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think uh, the last issue they wrote of Ecstatics, the 26th issue, I think the cover blurb had something that said, uh, downbeat yet strangely moving ending. Yeah, and I think that kind of summarizes yeah, a lot of yeah. their work. Do you want to talk about the impact a little bit? Yeah, I do. Let's uh, let's let's start off with uh, just some of the impact it had on Marvel Comics as a whole, and yeah. I guess to some extent maybe even uh, the industry. But I I wanted to point out that X Force number one sixteen was the first mainline Marvel book to drop the Comics Code Authority seal of approval. Oh. Uh, that So for those of you who aren't necessarily in the know, um, comics, there was a period in time where comics were blamed for... <laughs> uh, for... Social ill. Social ill, hooliganism, yeah. you know, crime, uh, that Turning sort of thing. kids into monsters. Yeah, they'll, they'll rob you because they read a comic book, yeah. you know, that sort of thing, right? So uh, the let's call it a compromise that uh, the comics industry decided to uh, abide by was that they would they would put this seal of approval from this comics code authority that essentially said that oh we reviewed this comic and we're we're gonna we're basically telling you that. There's nothing in this comic book that's going to turn your kid into a deviant. Yeah, there's yeah. no objectionable content. Yeah. So it was a big thing at yeah, the time. Yeah, it was a big thing. Yeah. Because uh, the seduction of the innocent, that whole book, and the movement by Frederick Wortham back in the 50s, that really killed a lot of it killed, the comics industry yeah. at the time. Yeah. They took down EC Comics, which had been publishing a lot of crime and horror comics. Yeah. And they said that these books were full of just violence and sex and yeah. again it was just turning kids into it was giving kids bad ideas yeah you and, know? and nowadays if you read old, read reprints of those old comics 
you'll be like, man, why were people upset by that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's a, a comment on our current moral standards because, you know, what we see on TV now is yeah pretty different from what people would see on TV back then, too. Yeah. But but at the same time, uh, you know, it, it wasn't anything that was... Like, they never really showed nu- nudity or things like that, did they? Like, um, maybe here and there, here but... Here and there. It wasn't like... Like, it there, wasn't... It wasn't in, there was a lot of implied there sex. Was a, there was a lot of implied <laughs> violence, a lot of implied sex, but yeah. it never felt like... It justified what happened to the to those companies, you yeah, know? yeah. But anyway, that's just a little backstory on what the comics code, code was authority about. was about. Yeah, so so Marvel Comics and DC Comics and and Archie Comics and all these other comic book publishers, they would have this little seal of approval on their cover. Yeah, uh, and <clears throat> I'm not gonna say that every comic always had to have that because there were a couple instances when. When Marvel published a comic, DC published a comic, and they removed the seal for that issue. You know, like, there was an issue in the 70s, I think, when, in Spider-Man, when, when I think Harry Osborn was doing drugs or something. Yeah. And it was, it was like an anti-drug story. Yeah. And they, they took off the seal for that because, for some reason, uh, you just can't depict drugs at all. Yeah. Even if the point of the story is to show you that drugs are bad. Yeah. So the viewers have to be like, oh, this doesn't... The idea is the viewers. Uh, th- this doesn't have the seal of approval on it. Yeah, I can't let my kids buy this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, there were also uh, adult-oriented titles. So you know, like Vertigo had would publish stuff, or or uh, the Marvel Max stuff didn't have the seal. But yeah, X X Force number one sixteen was the first mainline uh, Marvel book to drop the seal for good. Yeah, moving forward. So it basically. Help lead to Marvel creating their own in-house rating system. Yeah. And nowadays, nowadays comics companies self-regulate the content of their comics. There's no more industry-wide self-regulation. Mm. So it, it it really gives publishers the chance to invoke their First Amendment rights more freely. Yeah. So that's that's just one small impact that X Force Ecstatics had on the industry. I'm. I was going to say the other impact that Ecstatics brought with it, and I, I don't know if it's necessarily the thing that led it or if it was more indicative of what Marvel was thinking at the time, mm-hmm. but it did bring this tonal shift to um, to the to Marvel Comics at the time. I, again, this was this was the era of Joe Quesada and um, Axel Alonso, like mm-hmm. you said, and they were trying to uh, bring new voices into comics and uh, bring new perspectives in. So this this was uh, definitely something that stood out in terms of just how different it was yeah. from your run-of-the-mill comics that were being pumped out at the time. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. a marked shift from the 90s. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And I, th- I think with that... Uh, critical respect uh that was an that had an impact too because you also had some mainstream news outlets taking notice of yeah this x-men book that doesn't look like any comics that people were accustomed to like i think um i think rolling stone had some write-ups about it some little blurbs on it you know back then that was that was that was kind of a big deal it's a coup yeah it (laughs) is you know so some 
some uh, magazine or or uh, news site organization takes note of comics during a period when comics don't really get written or talked about outside of Wizard yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I guess you, I guess it'd be fair to say also that some of that attention ended up turning out to be negative. Like I mentioned earlier, that s- story with about uh, the Princess Diana story yeah, arc. Yeah. You know, that that probably had... I guess I would say that was a big impact where... Yeah. Where, yeah, the, the queen mean, stopped a Marvel comic from being published as intended. <laughs> you know? <laughs> how, how often can you say that happens? Yeah. Um... So, yeah, I think a lot of its impact is critical, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, it's it's hard for me. Like, I don't... This many years out, and it has been a lot of years since this comic came out, um, we still see sort of, like, flourishes of its popularity. Or, like, there's still a relevance to it in the sense that every so often, they still put out a miniseries. They, they did one, like, a couple of years back. Yeah, they uh, did an all-new Dupe miniseries. Yeah, so there's definitely something there that they tap into. You know, they they understood that this was that critically this was, um, I don't like saying high art, but they they understood the artistic merit of this book. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So um, it's something that they definitely touch on. Maybe not as much as some of the other X-Books, you know, like, it's... To this day, if you go to your average comic fan, they'll they'll still say that a Claremont book or the Claremont X-Men uh, is kind of the thing that... It, it's still stuff that people mine for stories to this very day. And yeah. I, I, can't nec- I can't necessarily say that X-Statics is a book that had lasting impact outside of itself. You know, it's it's not a book that other people could easily mine because number one, they killed all the characters. Yeah, yeah. The only character that's really persisted is Dupe. Yeah, Dupe. You'll still see him show up in comics here and there. I remember a few years ago when Jason Aaron was writing Wolverine and the X Men. Yeah, he brought Dupe into the school. So Wolverine yeah. and the X Men was a story where Wolverine starts a new school for gifted youngsters. It, he's the headmaster. He's the headmaster. Jean Grey, was that what it was called? I think so. Yeah, like the Jean Grey Academy for Higher Learning, yeah. or, or something. I can't yeah. remember what it was called. In yeah, and Dupe was there. Oh, even before then, when the X Men were in in San yeah. Francisco, uh, Dupe was on Utopia. Yeah, like he'd show up, and even if he was just a background character, you could tell that it, Dupe was always a character that other creators. Had. Yeah had love for you know and by extension i kind of see that as other creators having respect for milligan and all exactly too you know it's just that they're not gonna go disrespect the work by bringing these characters who's they've served their purpose you know they've told their their story's been told yeah there's no real sense in bringing all of them back but hey we can have dupe show up in the background hey we can have we can have dupe star an entire issue you know yeah. he had that one issue where he and deathlock teamed up you know i think mike aldred drew that one too nice yeah. nice. it's a nice little nod to the the lasting effect of milligan's work so yeah like that's kind of what i was gonna say was that the impact i think probably could most strongly be felt 
amongst other creators. Yeah. I could definitely see this being something that has affection from his contemporaries or, definitely. you know, e- even modern comics writer or younger comics writers who who were impact who who felt the significance of this book you know um totally yeah like i and it's i don't just because the impact is limited i don't necessarily feel like oh man why why aren't they doing another like why aren't they doing another ecstatic series but you know modernized with a different writer like I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that if, either. If Milligan and Allred aren't doing it, I exactly. really don't care. Yeah, Milligan and Allred told their story in its entirety, and you can appreciate it on that level. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, its its impact is there. It's it's subtle, I guess, but it's there. Yeah, totally. And I, another thing is, uh, I don't. I think it'd be fair to say that this comic uh, was a good boost to mike allred's profile yeah i mean he was already well known at he the was, time yeah he's well, already pe- an pe- exceptional artist yeah people who who know comics recognize him but i felt like after this we started seeing a lot more uh like mainstream kind of stuff from him yeah i mean he still took time and did more did more madman comics and did some atomics like his own creations but uh you know in the years ever since x-force and ecstatics he's also done a comic that ended up being adapted into a tv series you know i zombie yeah uh he also ended up doing a lot more marvel work too yeah where his at the time his when x-force came out his work looked a lot it it was different compared to his other people who were drawing marvel comics and dc comics definitely and it kind of feels like nowadays people draw more similar to his style where you you have like people like i don't know like chris samney or somebody oh yeah yeah, not not saying that he's a clone or anything but but just that sort of style where you have these really clean lines yeah and there's not an over reliance on over rendering figures yeah but it's just really crisp and clear lines with appropriately thick inks in the right places yeah where the focus is on the storytelling aspect and not necessarily on being flashy or being uh, or showing characters that are that are full of muscles. You know, it's not that traditional superhero house style. That yeah, yeah. You, you see a lot in kind comics of today. Generic and just kind of like it does the job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you you kind of see these people, these artists now who who are probably more they have more in common with Mike Allred's style than. With, uh, I could see that. With like a Jim Lee or I see that. or somebody like that or Rob Liefeld. Yeah. And Mike Allred ended up doing stuff like FF. He he did, oh, yeah, he yeah, did yeah, a long run true. on Silver Surfer. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, he I like that he's still getting a lot of good work in. Yeah. That Silver Surfer run is another example of just it's it's a showcase for his art style. Yeah. You know, like from what I've seen of it, it looks really good. Yeah. yeah. And for a guy that's been around for so long, his art hasn't lost a step. He he gets better and better. He's trying new things and yeah. getting more complex. And as a reader, you're just kind of in awe of his ability. Yeah. So for the final criteria, did you want to say anything about this book's ability to withstand the test of time? 
this is a comic that I'm gonna be reading over and over all the as long as I can read, man. Yeah. I to to be honest, I didn't read it for the first time until last year. And it had already been out for a decade and change yeah. by then. So there wasn't anything about it that when I read it took me aback and made me go that's not how people talk <laughs> that's not what is this you know and i i did mention earlier that um milligan's commentary on celebrity if anything it's more relevant now than mm-hmm. than it has been um if only because you know we live in an era where celebrity and politics and you know the very the very way that the world runs itself social media now social media and the fact that everybody's chasing celebrity more than ever yeah everybody's just chasing the more the more vapid aspects they want of, their they want their social media posts to get yeah. more likes or retweets yeah. or whatever anyone viral. and everyone can be a celebrity now yeah if anything that makes this book more relevant yeah you know that's a good point yeah that is a good point yeah there's also uh there's also just scenes that they're they're timeless you know like i think earlier in our talk i mentioned how when I was talking about Mr. Sensitive and, and his powers, I mentioned that there was a really funny scene about with him. Now, I'll bring it up now before I forget, but uh, there was a story at the end of the Ecstatics run when the Ecstatics team ended up fighting the Avengers. Yeah. So the premise was Dupe's uh, brain exploded and he had to use his backup brain in his butt, but all the pieces of his normal brain were spread throughout the earth. So it was a quest to collect the pieces of his brain because they could be one of the most powerful weapons if fall, if they fell into the wrong hands. So Mr. Sensitive goes to this uh, place in France. It's, it's this monastery for this obscure cult. And he ends up having to fight Iron Man one-on-one. But it turns out when, when they're during the course of their battle, uh, the people, those religious cultists, they, they're a cult that believes that clothing is profane. <laughs> so you can't be wearing your Iron Man suit. You can't be wearing your Mr. Sensitive yeah. suit while fighting on our on our grounds. You have to be naked. <laughs> so, so they're like, you know, we'd be bad guys if we didn't respect their religious beliefs. Yeah. So they both strip naked, and you have Tony Stark fighting Guy Smith naked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a funny scene because yeah. because Guy Smith's powers he's so sensitive that Tony Stark grabs a fistful of grass and he says eat grass and he just throws this grass at him and it messes him up yeah. like he's getting cut by shards of glass yeah and like from what I remember in that scene the whole time like he like Mr. Sensitive is just in agony because he can feel like the wind around yeah. him and he's just it just feels like knives on his skin. Yeah, it's yeah. it's just really funny stuff and the thing that pushed it over the top for me was this moment when Mr. Sensitive he touches uh Tony Stark on his on like his wrist or his forearm or something yeah. and as soon as he touches him there Tony Stark, the next panel, he just grabs his heart and he's like, ah, my heart. <laughs> he has a heart attack because he yeah. touched a pressure point. <laughs> it made me laugh and it always makes me smile when I pull it off the shelf and flip through it. <laughs> this is some good stuff and yeah, yeah, it's highly recommended. Highly recommended. Yeah, number 10 on our list, Ecstatics. Yep. All right. You want to move on to the next book? Yeah. 
What do we have at number nine, Albert? At number nine, we have The Runaways. This is uh, written by Brian K. Vaughn, drawn by Adrian Alfona. Yep. I, I, I assume that's how you pronounce the name. Um, it came out in July 2003 uh, for its initial 18-issue run, mm-hmm. and there was a pause there where uh, the the series ended or for very briefly, and in 2005 there was another 24 issues by the same team, I believe. Yes. Yes. Um, so just a brief synopsis of this story. Um, keep in mind that it's it's a lot more layered and there's definitely a lot more to it than uh than the overall general synopsis but uh in brief what it is is these kids so the question is what if you found out that your parents were super villains Mm -hmm. so it's about a group of kids that meet up whose parents meet up every every year or yeah, something year. like that and they think that their parents are all just part of the same like you know non-profit organization that's trying to do good for the world or something like that or they all yeah. happen to contribute to the same social circle or something yeah so to these kids they're they just kind of look at this like oh parents but one day uh at one at one of these meetings they slip into while the kids are these kids have grown up and they've kind of drifted apart and they don't even, even when they get together, there's no real sense of connection between them other than the fact that their parents are hanging out. And at one of these meetings, these kids slip in to peek at what their parents are doing and they witness their parents murdering uh, murdering an innocent for some dark ritual. And they they become runaways they decide to escape their parents and they vow more or less to stop them even the so so it is kind of this compelling coming of age story about facing off against your you know parents Mm -hmm. and if you want to look at it on a deeper level it's like every every kid comes to a point in their growth or in their development where they realize that their parents aren't necessarily what they think they are Uh, like uh, yeah if you want to take a bigger picture or take a bigger picture or of what the story is about um just a fun little tidbit or not tidbit but uh element of the story is um each of the parents sort of uh come from a different aspect of the marvel universe Mm -hmm. so you have or, or not even the Marvel Universe, but a different... They represent different kinds of Marvel or, or different kinds of super villainy, I guess. Yeah. So you have mutants, and then you have aliens. Uh-huh. Uh, a mad scientist There's couple. a mad scientist couple. There's a time traveler couple. Uh, there, there's a couple that are just straight-up criminals. Yeah. They're, they're gangsters. <laughs> yeah. So... That's, in brief, that is the synopsis of what The Runaways was about. But like I mentioned earlier, um, as the story progresses, there's definitely more things that happen and they find other newer ways to explore the story of this group of kids that are Mm -hmm. on the run from their parents. Yeah, and when we say kids, we're talking about teenagers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not children. (laughs) There's there's one child, uh, Molly, she's like, 
I think she's like nine years old at the start of the story, like a fourth grader or something. Yeah. And everybody else is like a, is in high school. Yeah. Um, like like you were saying, I think the uh, the thing about Runaways is that they subvert the classic Marvel trope of honoring your your guardian, right? Because yeah. you think about, I guess it's not even a Marvel trope, but it's but a it's comics no, trope. It's a, it's a superhero trope. Yeah. yeah where you got like Spider-Man, for example, he wants to do good because he failed his Uncle Ben that one time. Yeah. And everything he does is in honor of Uncle Ben. And he wants to take care of Aunt May. Yeah. You have Batman. Bruce Wayne. Even, in his parents, even though his parents are dead, yeah. he loves and reveres his parents. Yeah. Uh, Superman, yeah. he loves and reveres Ma and Ma Pa Kent. Pa Kent. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, exactly. A lot of it is about how the the loving parent is a cornerstone in their foundation as superheroes. Yeah. It's, it's what makes them good. And for these kids, their parents, they, they see their parents as kind of on the surface, they're pillars of society. You know, they contribute to, um, various causes. Charities. Yeah. And they're just kind of lame, you know, for every teenager, well, not every teenager, but you know, for the the stereotypical teenager, uh, their parents are kind of lame yeah. or they're corny or whatever. And the subversion is again, they find out that their parents aren't these lame PTA attending, uh, boring old people. They're they're monsters. They're super villains. <laughs> they're super villains. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, BKV once once said. Uh, Every kid at some point thinks that their parents are evil. Yeah. What if they really were? Yeah. I think that's I, a great I, way to sum it up. Yeah, I think that's what he wrote in his intro to the to the first hardcover. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that's basically the premise of of the series. Do you want to get a bit into just explaining the cast or describing who the characters are? Uh. So let's see. I'm gonna grab the book here just so I can look at them. Yeah. So, you have the leader of the crew. His uh, name's Alex. Yeah. Alex. And his parents are the gangsters. They're, they're criminal masterminds. They're, I guess they would represent the crime aspect of supervillainy. Right. You know? Some, so, they're kind of in vain, in vain with someone like Kingpin. Yeah. The Kingpin or, you know... Uh, Hammerhead or, you know, Lex Luthor. Well, maybe Lex Luthor. Tombstone or somebody. Yeah, Tombstone yeah. or somebody like that, right? There, oh, yeah, the other thing that we should mention is that uh, unlike most other Marvel comics, Runaways actually takes place on the West Coast. The, the story yeah. takes place in the L.A. area. And, oh, just to build on top of that, which... So a big, uh, a big thing about the Runaways or the kids in the Runaways is because they're on the run... And because they're teenagers, one, they don't know who to trust because their parents are just so powerful uh, mm -hmm. in terms of their influence that... They can't go to the police. They can't go to the police. And because of their youth, they can't go to superheroes because they're nobodies. They're just yeah. teenagers. They have no way to contact yeah. them. And again, yeah, and exactly. And because they're uh, most of the superheroes are on the East Coast, there's just no way to really get in contact yeah you know imagine if they sent an email to 
you know, the Fantastic Four. <laughs> It'd just be a bunch of crazy kids pulling a prank. Exactly. Yeah. It's um, a funny thing, too, because I guess their whole philosophy is don't trust any adults. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty punk rock. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another uh, character on the team is Nico. And uh, she's she's one of the elements of uh, super villainy that I didn't mention, but uh, her she represents her parents, they're sorcerers. Yeah, they're she so she they kind of cover the the magic element of uh, super villainy in comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nico is their daughter, and she's she's I guess you could call her a sorceress in training. Yeah, um, you know she just discovers that. She when whenever she cuts herself, she can access this staff that allows her to perform magic. Yeah, yeah. Um, in addition to Nico, we have Gert uh, Gertrude Stein. Isn't it Gertrude? Is it Edie or <laughs> or Eddie? <laughs> well, I was giving you what you gave me, son. <laughs> Um, her parents are, were they the time travelers? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So they were time travelers slash scientists, I think. Yeah. And her, her little, uh, I guess her little, um, flourish is that she has a pet velociraptor. (laughs) Yeah. It's actually not a velociraptor. It's, it's a different dinosaur, but I forgot how to pronounce it. It starts with a D. Dinosaur. She has a dinosaur. She has a pet dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> Homeschooled. <laughs> Class of 2006. <laughs> um, then you have Ch- uh, Chase, who's... He, he's got a pretty interesting dynamic because Chase is a jock, but his parents are... They're the mad scientists. They're the mad scientists, and... His dad sort of has a antagoni- antagonistic relationship with him because he just he doesn't respect that his son is a jock and kind of craps on him for not being as smart as him. Yeah. So it's it's another subversion where most of the times we see like bad parent or you know that uh, antagonistic father son relationship coming from a dad who wants his son to be. Who wants his son to be a jock? Who wants his son to be good at sports and yeah. you know successful, uh, popular basically? You yeah. know, but this time his dad is a super genius, and he's just disappointed in the fact that his kid's an idiot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what you think? That's funny. <laughs> I do, man. Do you, do you think Chase knows how to pronounce people's names, though? Oh, good question. Do you think he pronounces it Gertrude or Gertrude? <laughs> I guess we'll have to watch the show in order to figure it out. In the show, her name's Gertrude. Is it? I think so. Huh. But now you're making me second-guess myself, so <laughs> now I'm doubting the fabric of my life. Huh. Well, when we're done with this podcast, you can curl up into a ball... And try to sort that out. Why do I have to wait until we're done with this podcast? Why can't I do that right now? Okay, take fetal. Okay. <laughs> um, the next character is... I forgot her name. 
Carolina. Carol. Okay, Carolina. I was gonna go with Carolina, but okay, whatever. <laughs> Carolina, dude. Come on, man. <laughs> and she's, she's basically. I guess she's representative of kind of that you know you know that one kid who like loves their parents who who goes around saying my parents are my best friends. <laughs> she's that kid, more or less, and uh, her parents are alien invaders. Yeah, un- unbeknownst unbeknownst to us, they're aliens from another planet. And uh, Carolina's ability or trait is that she has the ability to turn into a light being or an energy being yeah who can uh you know fire bursts of energy and fly yeah yeah and then the last character is molly molly hayes Mm -hmm. and her parents are the mutants uh yeah well for the book it's mutants um, yeah and she's the youngest of the bunch and i i guess I, I guess uh, it's weird saying she's cute. She's a cute kid, you know, very naive. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the thing about her is she's she's the tank on the team. Yeah, she she's she's got super strength and durability. Durability, yeah. So it's it's a nice. It's a funny visual. It's a funny visual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see this cute, adorable, innocent little girl. Who can bench press a truck or punching people (laughs) through a wall? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the craft at all of this book? Like, in terms of the writing or the art style? Yeah. Um, It's it's tough to think of where to begin, but uh, this whole series was written in a way where you never felt like Brian K. Vaughn didn't know how to write kids yeah. or teens. Yeah. I would say... He didn't have them say, Radical! Yeah. Tubular! He, <laughs> he wasn't He wasn't overthinking it or trying to make them... He wasn't trying hard to sound cool, you know, is what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. And I think that pays off because maybe it's not necessarily uh, the most realistic dialogue that you'll find, but they actually sound like... People. People. They sound yeah. like real people. They're probably smarter than most of the teens that you'll ever meet. Yeah. Because they've got a certain type of wit that you don't see in... If you spend enough time around kids, a lot of them, they're not really that witty. <laughs> no disrespect to anyone under 18 who's listening. Because Prove me wrong, kids. Prove me wrong. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Hey, Albert and I were homeschooled. Yeah. Yeah. Send me an email. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I think you gotta celebrate how Brian K. Vaughn and Adrian Alfona succeeded in creating this believable cast of teenagers yeah. from the writing and the artwork. Because if you've read a lot of comics, you know how difficult it is for artists to draw convincing teenagers. Yeah. Whether it's Robin standing next to Batman or the Teen Titans, a lot of times a lot of artists end up just drawing like smaller adults basically yeah like the proportions look weird the posture and body language yeah doesn't make you think of a kid heck even the clothes that they wear right fashion yeah. i think adrian alfona always 
made the kids look like they were actual kids. Yeah. And everyone has a very distinct look. You know, like, I'm looking at the cover for The Runaways uh, deluxe hardcover right now, and Molly's body language is, you know, she's kind of a shy little kid, and mm-hmm. she's got she's got this signature hat that she wears. Yeah. Um, and Carolina, Carolina, she her parents are hippies, and she dresses like a hippie, <laughs> uh, you know? And Nico is this goth chick, and that totally makes sense for what her character is about, you yeah. know, the fact that she's kind of the magic user on the team. And Gertrude is just kind of, I guess you could, I guess I would describe her as almost your average, I wouldn't say antisocial, but I don't know what she's the kind t- of surly compared surly, to surly. Yeah, she's, she's not a popular kid, but she's, she's like the, a she, real girl. She's the, she's the kid who makes fun of the popular kids. Yeah, like, if, yeah. If you could imagine, like, Daria or something like that, just, um... Who's Daria? She had her own cartoon series, like, she was an MTV character who was just kind of... She was this kid who... She went to high school and she was just... Her signature thing was, she was... She made a lot of sarcastic remarks, you know? <laughs> That's she, true. She didn't dress herself up. Yep. She, uh, she was very comfortable in her own skin and, like, she just kind of mocked pop- popularity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the again, they all have their uh, very very unique looks, which which is a really cool way to draw us. It's a it's a cool way to draw a superhero comic where they don't have costumes, you know? Definitely. Yeah. They all have their own look. Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to mention that I forgot to mention earlier was um Runaways was part of a line that was released at the t- time called Tsunami. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the thing about this line, or... Um, so it's Gertrude. Gertrude. <laughs> Gertrude. <laughs> so the thing about this tsunami line was, it was... Um, I, like, I don't know what Marvel's thought process was at the time, but uh, it, it was... It was Marvel's version of anime, almost. Manga. Manga, sorry. They wanted to... They reach wanted out and expand to the manga reading audience, which was booming at the in the early two thousands. Yeah, yeah. I, I like I can only assume. Like I think that's a safe assumption to make. Mm-hmm. So, so if you look at Runaways, their art style. It, I'm not saying that it's exactly like manga, but there there's a similarity to it. You know, like their <clears throat> their their figures are a little softer. Um, their eyes are a little more wel- welcoming, I guess. You know? I think the entire art team gave this series a really good look. Uh, yeah. Adrian Alfona was the penciler, but Craig Young inked all of his issues, and Christina Strain colored it. She's, like, an awesome colorist. Like, yeah. one of the best colorists yeah. that I can think of who's still doing comics today, too. Yeah. Uh, but they... If I were to describe the... The way that she colored it, I'd say, like over the course of the series, it it, it gets really vibrant, um, and it's it's like a really wide color palette that's not necessarily uh, the most realistic in terms of like being photorealistic. Yeah. But it's it's realistic in terms of of setting tone and mood, yeah. and also conveying the idea that this is like an energetic 
youthful sort of story. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that there's a lightness to the way that they colored it, you know? Mm -hmm. It's, I don't know, it almost looks kind of pastel to me. Well, maybe not that light, but... I do think that the artwork improves a lot over the course of these issues. I believe it. If you if you look at the first couple issues, yeah, some of the the faces they still look kind of flat. Some of the backgrounds look pretty plain. Yeah, because I I think I think this might have been Alfona's first comic, at least his first maybe his first big comic. Yeah, so maybe there's some element of him kind of finding his voice and just developing, but by the time you get to the end of those first eighteen issues. You could tell like there's a massive improvement, and then when you get to the second volume, when yeah. they, when uh, when you get to the second volume of it, his art's really really good, and yeah. the coloring, everything gets even better. There's like a lot of, I don't know, there's a lot more detail to it. The the textures and the proportions seem a lot more consistent, and the and because I think in, in the first. The first arc, there were some parts where uh, some of the characters looked kind of flat, or the way that they were drawn, it wasn't. They didn't really feel like fully three dimensional. But towards the end, like the pages you're looking at right now, yeah, like those are that's some that's a really well developed uh, character. Yeah, like just the way that the details and and the shading. Yeah. They're not flat anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, his art's just... He gets he a He gives them better. depth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, in regards to BKV's writing, it's... It's interesting. Um, he does... He does their drama really well. Mm-hmm. Like, it makes... He... He... He has sent... Basically, what he does is he takes these characters uh, that haven't existed in the Marvel universe before, and he really does a good job of just expanding upon their world over his run mm-hmm. uh, of the series, you know. And it's it's not it's not like a TV show where it's like every week we're gonna like have to evade whoever the the parent of the week is or the <laughs> villain of the week. He he eventually resolves that story, but expands on it you know he eventually the kids are gonna have to eventually the kids run into other kids that are that are similar that have similar circumstances but there's also internal conflict within the within their group as they have to try to figure out if one of them is a traitor yeah traitor (laughs) (laughs) you know so like he brian k vaughn not only does a good job of you know making them sound like real people but in terms of his plotting he does a good job of building in a lot of conflicts that just feel natural you know yeah yeah yeah. some of that conflict is what you would expect such as uh interpersonal relationship drama yeah which which is befitting for a teen comic some of the conflicts are from just the outside forces that are pursuing them. Yeah. And it's called, it's called runaways for a reason. Yeah. They're not running from nobody here, but their parents are, are out to get them. And then after that story is resolved, there's other things that they're running away from too. Yeah. 
and the whole the whole uh, through line throughout the series is that they're not gonna trust any adults. They're not gonna they're not gonna be safe if they do that. Yeah. So they keep on running, and all they have is each other. And it's it's a story about it's partly a coming of age story, and it's also a story about friendship and and yeah. sticking together. Yeah. When things around you are falling apart. Yeah. By the end of it, you, uh, I mean, this sounds corny, but I guess you grow with them and you eventually even, you know, when one of them, when something happens to one of them, you feel it, Yeah. you know, and it's, that's, I think that's the earmark of a good writer is that he gives, he or she gives you, gives you enough so that you can become invested in their in their story. Yeah, and, and Brian K. Vaughn does that. Yeah. He creates yeah. all these characters. They're brand new characters that he and Alphona created and they all they're all three dimensional characters. Yeah. Like every every single Everyone one has them, a personality. They have a distinct personality. Yeah. You as a reader, you understand where they're coming from, you understand each character's motivations and what's what they value in life, what's important to them. Yeah. You understand how they sound, like they're you know, because they have a personality, like we said, and, and you understand uh, enough about them that you do end up caring for the characters because yeah. it, it is, at the end of the day, it's a very character-driven drama. It is, it is. That's, that's, uh, yeah, it's it's very well said. Do you want to talk about their originality? Like what, mm-hmm. like why... Why we think this was a pretty original concept? I touched upon it a little bit earlier, but the idea that this is a book that subverts the classic superhero trope of superheroes who revere their guardian figures. Yeah. Because these characters, they don't revere <laughs> their guardians at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, because of because of uh, their guardians they end up rejecting adults altogether yeah it's 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 kind of uh one-upping the idea of x-men and youth in revolt yeah <laughs> you know like totally. it takes it to the next level because <laughs> even the x-men trust charles xavier yeah <laughs> <laughs> hey you remember when charles xavier was in love with gene gray <laughs> I think that's something we should forget. <laughs> I I remember it, but uh, dang that! How would you feel if your father figure told like secretly harbored <laughs> a D? <laughs> you can't even bring yourself to I say can't. it. It's just <laughs> it's dirty. It's ooky. It's too dirty, man. <laughs> it's gross. Um, the other thing that. I'm going to talk about this in impact as well, but I feel is worth mentioning in terms of how original this book was, was, uh, this book introduced something new to the Marvel universe up to this point. Like the, the Marvel universe and the DC universe both have their stable of characters that they, rely on to keep going yep. so dc's always gonna write superman marvel's always gonna write spider-man and you know the the universe keeps going yeah and rarely i, I you know the, 
it's not to say that those two publishers don't ever take a gamble on something new. They do, and they'll try to put stuff out there, but there isn't a lot of lasting power yeah. in the things that they put out, you know? Comics fans, they're very conservative in terms of being what they open-minded like. yeah. and trying new comics. Most people tend to like the same characters and yeah. just stick with those characters. It's not really about... I feel like I'm going to be uh, generalizing here, but I feel like most comic book fans, or superhero fans at least... They follow characters, not creators. Yeah, and yeah. to me, that's that's just kind of a. It doesn't it doesn't make it easy to try n- good things, or <coughs> try new things. Yeah. If all you want to do is collect all the X Men comics, yeah, like every single X Men comic, you know. What's the point of just if all you're gonna do is follow the X-Men because they're the X-Men. And you can't have any gaps in your collection. Yeah, and you, you, you're you just compulsive about that. Then what does it matter what it's about? Yeah. What does it matter if they sound real or stupid? Yeah. You know? Like, it doesn't, you know? It just then, doesn't matter. It, ju- it doesn't. <laughs> it just doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. <laughs> but... Yeah, so you're you're absolutely right when you say that. Well, uh, okay, I'm not gonna say you're absolutely right, but like I I understand where you're coming from when you say that most comics readers tend to be conservative about what they like, you know. Um, so it's very rare that we see something new get introduced into the Marvel universe that. Or not even the Marvel Universe, but into the comics industry that either is a truly original concept or that isn't a uh, spin-off of something else, you know? Yeah, I would say that applies primarily towards corporate superhero comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we... I would say we do see a lot of original stuff outside of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly, certainly. But certainly in terms of corporate superhero comics, um, Brian know, K. Vaughn yeah. and Adrian Alfona, they gave Marvel a gift. Yeah. They gave them a gift yeah. by creating the Runaways because there's nothing in these comics that wouldn't work if it had been their own creator-owned project. Like yeah. If, if they had made Runaways... And, and gone and self-published it or maybe done it through Image or, or whatever. Yeah. And they owned it. It still would have been just as good. Yeah. The only thing that Runaways really gets from being a part of the Marvel Universe is that they get to use some of the Avengers. Yeah. You know, the Avengers show up. You can have Cloak and Dagger show up. You can have the Wrecking Crew. Yeah. Yeah. But... All that stuff is just kind of secondary, it's, you know? It is, it's, because the, the heart of the story lies with the characters that they created. Yeah. So, yeah, BKV and Alfona gave Marvel a real gift. Totally, totally. And even though there's a TV show now, man, I hope I hope they're getting some good money from that, because they Same deserve here. it. Same here. Yeah. So, it... Yeah, like, I do think it's truly an original concept. Like, out of... So, we mentioned earlier that this comic came out of the Tsunami line... And it had enough of a following where even after the rest of the books in that line had they got faded canceled. Away, okay, canceled. I was 
Okay, cancelled. <laughs> we don't need euphemisms here. <laughs> they went quietly into the night. <laughs> Comics is a harsh world, man. It's best you get used to that while you're young. Be a man. The world is going to disappoint you. <laughs> <laughs> so when the other comics got cancelled, this one got new life far beyond those that initial line. Yeah. You know? Um... So much so that even other writers eventually took it on after that. Yeah. 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 So Runaways had a lot of fan support from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, I have no... I haven't done any uh, like documentation or scientific academic research on this, but from what I remember anecdotally, um, Runaways was one of the first comics I can think of that had a massive uh, fan following on the internet, enough to the point where um, they were able to save the comic from cancellation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, an, yeah. the other comic that I could think of was Spider-Girl, but um, we're not here to talk about Spider-Girl. We're here to talk about Runaways. Which Spider-Girl was this? The... The Mayday Parker Spider-Girl. Was that the future one? Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, actually, that, I do remember that. Because that one... I vaguely remember that. one that. kept getting almost canceled, but... It had enough fan support where they kept yeah. extending it. I think so. Supergirl did too, right? Peter David Supergirl? Maybe. I, I don't remember. Oh, okay. But yeah, Runaways was the, was the big one that's, yeah. that stands out for me. Because, you know, keep in mind, this was the early 2000s. Yeah. Fan culture isn't... It was still developing, I guess. The but, internet was still a new... Well, not new, but like it wasn't as developed as yeah, it was like now. There, there, wasn't, there wasn't any Twitter yeah. where you could... like. At Talk, Marvel all yeah, the time, yeah. saying, "Hey, bring back yeah. this comic or whatever." The yeah, so I think this is a good way for us to transition to into the subject of this comic's lasting impact. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's hard to talk about the impact of this comic without talking about its originality. But um, yeah, it, it's it's had such lasting power all these years to the point where we even mentioned earlier that it has its own show now. Yeah. Um, and like you said, you uh, like you were just talking about this was one of the early comics that was just so popular that when all the other books were canceled, there was fan outcry for it to come back, and it came back. Yeah. You know, and there was eventually at one point one of the characters dies and fan reaction was pretty huge from what I remember, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like again, this was kind of at a different stage of development in the internet, but you know, the, the, the outcry, I mean, I'm not, I don't think they were wanted her back, but you could see people being upset by it. It hurt. Yeah. It hurt. It hurt. Yeah. Just for, uh, the sake of comparison, some of the other titles that came out when Runaways initially launched as part of the Tsunami line, most of those other series got canceled after 12 issues. Yeah. Runaways lasted 18 issues, then it got canceled, and then it got brought back yeah. for another 24 issues by Brian K. Vaughn and Adrian Alfona. A couple fill-in artists here and there. Yeah. Uh, and then after those 24 issues, it lasted another six issues under Joss Whedon, yeah. the guy who created... Uh, what was it Buffy called? the Vampire Slayer. Right, right. Yeah. I heard of that show. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing that I was going to say. When we talk about the impact of uh, Runaways and when we talk about Runaways, uh, the series, uh, I wanted to be very specific that 
uh, I wanted to, to be clear that we're being pretty specific to um, the Brian K. Vaughn and Adrian Alfona Runaways. Yeah. Because that really was something special. And this, this book did so well that Marvel tried to keep it going with different writers yeah. long after Brian K. Vaughn left the book. Brian K. Vaughn and Adrian Alfona left the book. Yeah. The, the, the next creative team that they put on this series was no small person at all. They got Joss Whedon, yeah. you know, a well recognized name yeah and after that was it terry moore terry moore terry yeah. moore and you know there were some other writers here and there that i can't really name off the top of my head but um and they kept trying to do these uh crossovers and miniseries like every time marvel would have an event yeah they would have the renovates involved even if it d- didn't really make a whole lot of sense yeah like i remember uh they kept having these clashes with the young avengers just yeah. because they were the two teen yeah. super teams but it was it never felt like you had to read those you know because yeah. and for me runaways is all about the brian k vaughn and adrian alfona run yeah uh and ever since then the the subsequent stories that they tried to do they they just didn't stick yeah. and eventually the book got canceled and then all the characters in the runaways they kind of got shunted off to showing up in different comics like you'd have uh, Nico and Chase show up in in uh, Avengers Arena. Yeah, you'd have uh, Victor Mancha, who was one of the runaways New, yeah. that was introduced later on in the run. He would show up in some Avengers comics and and even uh, the Vision by Tom King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Nico wasn't she a part of A Force? I have no idea. <laughs> I think Nico was part of A Force at some point. Yeah, but it it just kind of feels like Marvel recognizes that these are some really great characters they just don't know what to do with them yeah well yeah they corporatized them after that yeah. right so yeah. that's that's the so so these first adults are bad kids <laughs> adults are bad they'll ruin you so those... they'll ruin you <laughs> so those 42 issues that are like the total 42 issues uh, i think that's 40 18 24 42 can okay. you do math 42. You counted? 38, 39, 40. You added? Yeah, 42. Dude, <laughs> homeschooling's really paying for itself. Whoop, whoop. Dude, you went to... Hooty hoop! Yeah, homeschool university, <laughs> man. Sign me up for that. So those 42 issues are, are truly something special. Um, and, yeah, like, it's it's to the point where everything after that, I'm, I'm not going to knock anyone who liked the Joss Whedon stuff or the Terry Moore stuff, but it just, yeah, it, it just lost some of its magic to me or, and I imagine to you too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, I, I guess that's just a testament to Brian K. Vaughn's and, uh, Adrian Alfona's voice, you know, uh, so much so that it left such a lasting impact that even now, like in this past year, we saw this converted to a TV show. Yeah, you know, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we I think at some point we may talk about the show a little more. But you know, for I I, I think that's in, indicative of just how popular this was, and I do feel like you're right that moving forward for Marvel, they. They just kind of put these kids everywhere 
just because they didn't know how to use them and they would have different writers that maybe theoretically should have worked you know these different voices that they sort of saw as being similar to brian k vaughn and it just didn't yeah yeah it's a shame yeah brian k vaughn um he's definitely one of the most significant and important writers to come out of comics and to rise up in comics in the yeah. past 15 years or so yeah and this book is a big reason why yeah he he started in comics i think his first comics were probably in either the really late 90s or or 2000 uh but it wasn't until uh, until Why the Last Man when he became BKV, you know? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like Before that, he was just the, this writer, Brian K. Vaughn, that you'd see on some credits here and there. And then in, I think it was in September of 2002, so just maybe a little more than half a year before Runaways came about, Brian K. Vaughn did a comic called, started a comic called Why the Last Man, for DC's Vertigo line. If we ever do a DC list of the top 25, I'm pretty sure that'll be on it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, just going back to uh, talk about the impact of R Runaways, you know, this book, uh, Why the Last Man, and then Ex Machina, which was a series he started in the middle of his Runaways run. Like, I think all three of those books were extremely big, they were all really important in in building up his name, building up his profile. And today he's just one of the most successful and acclaimed and respected writers in comics. And he hasn't even been limited to comics either. He he he's written for uh, popular television shows. Like I think he worked on Lost. Yeah. He was a showrunner. He did or producer on Under the Dome. Uh, yeah. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. So this this guy's like a really prolific writer and even even when he was working on TV, he never he wasn't one of those guys who saw comics as um it a was stepping his first stone love. to yeah. something else, you know. He yeah. he still works in comics today. He still writes comics. Yeah. Nowadays he's known for for bigger books like Saga. Yeah. Or um Paper Girls. Yeah. But uh, oh, he, he even started his own, I, I, I guess it's a company, a Panel Syndicate, where it's a website, if you check it out, um, they basically post uh, comics where you can pay what you want for these digital comics, and they're all original works, so he's just willing to try different things, and, yeah. and not only uh, in terms of experimenting with the form of comics, but in doing things in the industry, you know, yeah. in terms of the distribution of how people read and get their comics. And I think, yeah, Runaways just had a big part to play in, in his his overall career. Yeah. It's just because, again, this is one of the best and biggest writers of, of, of the past 20 years. Yeah. Y yeah. Uh, Runaways is... It's, it is a huge milestone in his work, but yeah, I guess you could say the, the greater impact is that it added to his already increasing profile yeah. to a point where I'd, I'd be hard pressed to say that Brian K. Vaughn or BKV 
isn't recognized within the industry as just this powerhouse almost yeah. you know like he he still writes comics but like you said he he works in um television and he uh he his his own creator own comics are beginning uh getting a lot of recognition and um even he can the sell potential st- yeah he can sell stuff based on his name yeah exactly exactly perfect perfect way to put it so uh yeah it's it's hard not to say that this didn't have a huge impact on the comics industry mm-hmm. you know it's it clearly does it clearly did yeah adrian yeah. alfona his i can't really think of too much other comics he's done other than uh ms marvel which is a really popular comic for marvel right now too if you just look at his art um he's still a, a really good artist like he just gets better with with time and experience yeah oh yeah other thing i wanted to mention since we were talking about ecstatics earlier molly hayes she's a dupe fan (laughs) (laughs) she has a i remember she had a in one of the stories she had a dupe t-shirt and they showed you her room and she had a dupe stuffed toy (laughs) look there's dupe on the cover of this one (laughs) that's pretty funny (laughs) (laughs) you ever noticed that albert i didn't there's a lot going on in this cover to to be fair though so, what do you think of this, uh, of Runaways and its ability to withstand the test of time? Oh, I think it's, there's no question it's going to withstand the test of time. Agreed. Well. Agreed. Because this, this story is not about, um, a time period or, or it's not, it's not trapped in its time period. Yeah. Obviously, it takes place in the early 2000s. You can tell by technology you know nobody has yeah a smartphone but it doesn't even matter yeah it doesn't matter because this is this is a story that's character driven yeah and when you have strong characters it doesn't really matter whether it takes place in 2004 or 2018 yeah it's all about the characters yeah maybe maybe someone is gonna read it one day and be like hey how come they're not on snapchat or whatever yeah but it's like Dude, are you missing the point? Seriously. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, how removed from human interaction are you that what you see, like, how the way that you perceive these kids interacting with one another is completely foreign to you? Yeah. You know? I, and I find that hard to believe. Even in an age where everybody's on their phone tweeting or whatever, like, people still talk to each other. Yeah. You know? No, but then again, maybe uh, like it's been a long time since I've been a teenager, so you know what do I, I know? <laughs> I, I did. I did read in the news that I think it was in the Atlantic where they said that nowadays a lot of teens they basically just spend most of their time in their room. I did uh, see that article away from people and spend most of their interaction is through social media and through their phones. Yeah, so that's kind of sad, but. Um, I don't think that's really that's not really pertinent to yeah that this comic and how it withstands the test of time because if 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 that's your baseline measure of whether something is relevant then I would say that that's not the right way to read yeah anything I'd also say you might want to like reevaluate your life oh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> like if 
if you don't if seeing two people converse with each other in person is weird to you uh yeah <laughs> could, could you imagine a version of runaways where when they're all, all just in their own rooms yeah <laughs> texting or yeah. tweeting towards each other and it's like let's go guys <laughs> at special rific <laughs> <laughs> that is funny yeah it's yeah it's 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 just not a book that's defined by its era it really isn't because it's a book defined by its characters yeah yeah absolutely true i do think that uh it's going to be interesting to see how the show uh continues the continues on i've watched season one i enjoyed it yeah it, it does have its differences from the comic which are understandable yeah uh you, you said you didn't watch it yet, right? I didn't watch all of it, no. Okay. But they recently announced, or a few months ago, I think they announced that they're doing season two, so it's going to yeah. continue. And since the show takes place in modern times, it's weird to think that this is modern times now. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I think because the, because of the show, we'll get to see... Kind of an updated version, I guess. Kind of, yeah. 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 But it's just just so our listeners know, uh, Brian K. Vaughn does have involvement in the show as well. Yeah. So um, it'll be a nice little remix in the sense that, and I don't know what his level of involvement is, but I imagine, uh, or I hope that it's pretty significant. You know. Yeah, I'm uh, not sure exactly how deeply he's involved in, but yeah. I do know that he's involved. I remember. Right around the time the show came out, I, I was listening to this podcast on The Ringer where it was Brian K. Vaughn and the two showrunners for Runaways on Hulu. Yeah. And so he, he clearly, like, communicates and works with them. One of the things I remember him saying when he was he was kind of reminiscing about the comic. So the, at, when we first started talking about the comic, you mentioned how the story begins with the kids finding out that their parents are these... Uh, super villains because mm. they end up performing this uh, ritual murder on this innocent and yeah. in, in the comic the, the they murder this uh, she's a runaway too I guess like she's a basically implied to be a teen prostitute and I, remember, I was gonna say hooker but okay yeah <laughs> teen hooker yeah okay. um, and Brian K. Vaughn I remember listening to that interview with him he, he says something about how his original script had them sacrificing a baby. <laughs> but I guess the editors thought it was too dark. So apparently you can't sacrifice a baby, but you can have a teen hooker. <laughs> See, the the hierarchy goes baby, puppy, hooker. <laughs> uh, and like firefighter or something. I don't know. Firefighter? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Uh, can you imagine them trying to abduct a <laughs> firefighter to sacrifice him in a satanic ritual? Uh, all right. So, any final thoughts on uh, The Runaways by Brian K. Vaughn and Adrian Alfona? Just want to point out that this is a book that has continually been in publication ever since it first came out. Yeah. It's it's not something as far as I know. It's never gone out of print. Yeah, like they're constantly p 
publishing new trades, uh, new copies of the collections. There's a digest version. They, they they had in the beginning they had digest versions. Then they did they did uh, regular sized versions. Then they did hard covers, ultimate collections. Um, yeah, so it, I think just the fact that it's been perpetually in print. Um, it's a sign. Yeah, it, it's a testament that this is something that people continue buying, continue reading. There's a lot of comics out there that, you know, even if they go out of print for a few months or a couple years, you know, it's kind of annoying if if, if you're a reader out there who hears about a good story and you want to read it and you yeah. can't you can't buy it for a reasonable price because it's out of print. Yeah. But Runaways, they've constantly kept it in print. Yeah. So there's no reason for you to not go out there and read it, even yeah. if you just go to the library, check it out. Uh, yeah, definitely. I highly, like it's on our list for a reason. It's highly recommended, and it's those forty forty four issues, man. I just thought you said forty two. Forty two, whatever. I added two. Just read read two of the issues again. <laughs> <laughs> read the forty two issues, and then read two issues again, and it'll be forty four. <laughs> yeah, and then come back and tell us which issues were your favorites. <laughs> But um, yeah, read those forty-two issues because um, they're a self-contained story, and they're they're not they're not hindered by any of the initiatives that were going on at the time. Like you, you can totally just enjoy them on their own. Yeah, yeah. Awesome comics. So today we had at number ten on our list, Ecstatics by Peter Milligan and Mike Allred. At number nine, we had Runaways by Brian K. Vaughn and Adrian Alfona. There we go. Check them out. Any parting words, Albert? Um, Firemen. And then you have hookers, puppies, and babies. That's the that's the hierarchy of what's important in life. Yeah. That's how we value life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. There you go. <laughs> Word to our sponsors. Oh, right. Um, just before you leave, I wanted to give a shout-out to our friends at The Beefy Company. Uh, visit their website at thebeefyco.com. That's B-E-E-F-Y-C-O.com. They're our friends. They uh, promote us when they can, and they've got a lot of awesome products, including T-shirts and plushes. So please go visit our friends and, uh, you know, uh, show them your love, show them your support. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Yeah. You've been listening to Between the Gutters. If you have any comments or feedback, you can always email us at betweenthegutterspodcast at gmail.com or just shoot us a line on Twitter or Instagram. Yeah. Get back to you. Follow us on Instagram, please. All right. Peace out. Peace. Shonka donka. (laughs) 